0: Okay, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles again and open them at John chapter 20. Uh, We're just going to be working our way through that passage and it'd be really helpful so you can uh, follow along. Today we come to the end of our series in John's Gospel, looking at these signs that Jesus performed. Last Sunday we were in uh, chapter 11 and where we saw that remarkable, that astonishing, that hope-filled sign of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And this morning we're jumping forward a few chapters to chapter 20 and we're looking at Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection really is the sign. Before we consider Jesus' resurrection I want to remind you of the purpose uh, or John's purpose in writing these signs down for us. Jesus, we're told, performed lots of other signs but these have been selected and written down by John for a purpose. What is the purpose? The purpose is so that we might believe. He tells us that right at the end of chapter 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, and then if the children want to join in, because this is the memory verse, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. In his name. Often, when people in the modern world talk about belief or faith, they often mean uh, a leap in the dark. So there's the facts on one hand, uh, and then on the totally other end of the scale, there's faith. Faith becomes like uh, wishful thinking uh, opposed to the hard realities that we know are true. But I hope you're seeing that as we're going through this Gospel of John that he uses faith in a in a totally different way faith as a leap in the dark couldn't be further from john's mind when he talks about belief he's not talking about closing our mind off to the evidence no john is wanting to lay down the evidence for us so he tells us what he saw and so that we having heard his eyewitness testimony might also believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing in him, we may have life in his name. That's John's aim. That was uh, the path that John had taken as an eyewitness. And that's the path he's leading others toward. John doesn't want us to pretend to believe we, to believe something we know isn't, tr- isn't true. He wants, us, he wants to convince us of what he knows is true. He's leading us to the right interpretation of the evidence. Chapter 19, obviously the chapter before, chapter 20, John describes the the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. Jesus really died, he tells us. Trained executioners, Roman soldiers verified his death. And just to confirm it, they they put a spear in his side and blood and water came out then t- two men Joseph of arimathea and nicodemus two fairly prominent men uh, at that time they they took jesus body down and handled it and prepared it for burial and then jesus was placed in a tomb with a great stone rolled over john knows that jesus is really dead and then we come to chapter 20 that's the passage for this morning uh, and there we see the resurrection of jesus and in the first nine verses, I think Johnny's trying to show us that the resurrection, it really happened. The resurrection, it, it really happened. Let's look at these first nine verses. These verses are full of all sorts of detail which show that it's its an eyewitness. Just look at verse one, we're given the time of the day, it's, it's early morning. We're given the day of the week, it's the first day of the week. That's the third day since Jesus died. And we're even told that it's, it's still dark, so the sun has not yet come up. And on that first day of the week, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. She was one of the women who was gathered around the cross who saw Jesus die. She was devoted to Jesus. As she approaches the tomb, she's shocked, actually terrified to find out that the, the stone is, has been rolled away. The tomb is open. She presumes that somebody has taken the body. So she rushes off to the disciples. Verse 2, she comes running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. That's John's way of, of referring to himself. If you look at the end of chapter 21, we'll see that this other disciple is the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's the disciple who's writing this gospel. It's John's way of referring to himself. And as Mary comes running to these two disciples, she, she brings the news. Verse 2, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. She presumes someone's taken the body of Jesus. At Mary's news, the disciples turn and, and run towards the tomb. You can almost imagine John picturing this in his mind as he, he writes it down. We both ran, he says. I, I ran faster and reached the tomb first. But I didn't go in. Peter, he finally caught up and then he went into the tomb. That sounds like Peter, doesn't it? Never one to tentatively hold back. This reads this reads like a, an eyewitness testimony. And when you compare it with the other gospel narratives of this resurrection morning, each has its own details. They're not contradictory, they're, they're complementary. And in verse six to seven, John describes in detail the, the grave clothes. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Again, more eyewitness detail. Why all the detail about the grave clothes? Well, I think it shows uh, this wasn't. Uh, there was no panicked removal of the body by people trying to steal Jesus' body. If that was the case, they wouldn't have taken the time to Remove the grave clothes and fold them up. But also, Jesus' grave clothes are in contrast, aren't they, to Lazarus' grave clothes. Remember last week we looked at Lazarus. What was he like when he came out of the tomb? Well, he was wrapped head to toe in grave clothes, and Jesus had to give the instruction uh, for him to be be, uh, released. But not Jesus. At his resurrection, all vestiges of death simply fall away. It seems that at his resurrection, there was no unwrapping needed. He simply passed through the grave clothes, leaving them behind in the place where they lay. Much the same as Jesus can appear later on in the chapter in the room, even though all the doors are locked. doesn't mean that Jesus is some kind of ghost or that his resurrection is just a spiritual reality. No, no, this is a, a physical resurrection. Later in, uh, in the account, he, he will appear to his disciples and say, touch me. In chapter 21, he'll eat breakfast with them on the beach. The resurrection of Jesus is not a spiritual myth to make us feel better. It's a, it's a physical reality. But the contrast with with Lazarus grave clothes, I I think shows the difference uh, between the resurrection or the raising of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus. Lazarus was raised to the ordinary kind of life that we know and would one day die again. Jesus has raised, has, has been resurrected never to die again. Finally, Uh, John goes into the tomb in verse 8, says, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. He sees the way the grave clothes are folded. He sees the body of Jesus isn't there. And he believes. He believes that Jesus is alive. He believes that Jesus is resurrected. Now, I may think that's a bit of a premature conclusion for John to jump to, just because the the tomb is empty, that he should believe that Jesus is resurrected. But when John looks back on the event, he makes a comment which suggests that actually he wasn't being premature, but he was a bit slow off the mark. Verse 9, he says, They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. The resurrection should not have been a bolt from the blue for the disciples. Jesus had told them at least three times in the weeks preceding that he was going to Jerusalem, he was going to die, he was going to rise again. Not only that, they had the testimony of the scriptures. And John's comment there makes clear that if they'd understood the scriptures, they would have known that the Christ must rise again. Centuries of writing and revelation from God would show that truth, that death would not be the end because the Christ would rule an eternal kingdom. God had been preparing his people and his world for this glorious Sunday morning, centuries of advertising of what he would do for his Christ. If these disciples have understood the scriptures, they would have expected Jesus' resurrection. But it's only here when John finally sees the empty tomb that he he believes. The resurrection, it happened. And because the resurrection has happened, that means that the rescue has been accomplished. The rescue, it's accomplished. This is verses 10 to 23. There's a lot going on in verses 10 to 23. This morning, we're only really going to use... Broad brushstrokes, but the main thrust of these verses is to show us that the rescue Jesus came to bring has been accomplished. Peter and John uh, they return to their lodgings. Mary she remains at the tomb, verse eleven, and she's crying. Perhaps it's the shock of the morning events, perhaps the grief or the confusion. But as she stoops to look into the tomb, the scene is very different from the one that John and Peter saw. There's now two angels standing there and they ask Mary, Mary, what, why the tears? And she repeats what she's already told the disciples. They've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they have put him. And she turns around and she sees someone. She sees, but she doesn't really see. Because it's Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. And she thinks he's the gardener. But when Jesus says her name, then she knows. Verse verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Here on this resurrection Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene becomes the first witness to the resurrected Jesus. Again, this has the, the ring of authenticity, didn't it? If you, doesn't it? If you wanted to fabricate uh, a story in the, in the first century AD, you wouldn't have used a woman as your, your first witness. Especially a woman like Mary Magdalene. We know from, from elsewhere that she had a, a questionable history. But here she is, Mary Magdalene, the first witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And she's, she's so delighted to see Jesus that she wants to cling on to him. She doesn't want to let him go, but that's not the plan. The plan is that he ascends back to his father and her job is to go and spread the message to help others understand that the rescue is accomplished. Listen to the words that Jesus gives her to pass on to the disciples. Jesus said to her, "'Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father.'" Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. In John's gospel, Jesus has repeatedly claimed, hasn't he? We've we've seen this, that he's the one sent from God. He's the son who's, who's come from the Father. And now he's saying that he's returning to the Father. But did you see Jesus' astonishing words? go to my disciples. No, that's not what he says, is it? He says, go to my brothers. I am ascend, tell them I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. Jesus' rescue means that now these disciples, those who believe, are welcomed into God's family. Right at the start of John's gospel, John wrote this, To all who received him, that's Jesus, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. No longer cut off from God, no longer estranged from God, no longer enemies of God, but, but reconciled and welcomed into his family. Rescue accomplished. Jesus' words when he appears to Mary, helps us understand that this rescue is about adoption into his family about becoming part of the the family of the eternal god and mary is then sent on with this joyous news and so even before the disciples see that jesus is alive they hear this good news Then there's a a second appearing. So the first appearing here is is to Mary. The second appearing is to the disciples. And that's the same evening. So this is resurrection morning. And now uh, in verses uh, 17 onwards, we're we're at a a resurrection evening. These verses, uh, they help us uh, to understand more about this rescue that's been accomplished. Verse 19, the disciples are fearful, they're, they're shut in in a room for fear of the Jewish authorities. The Jewish authorities have just executed Jesus and they are his followers. And so they're locked in out of fear. And then suddenly Jesus just appears in the room and he greets them. You can see he's greeting there, peace be with you. That would have been a fairly ordinary greeting, but notice John's emphasis, it's repeated again, verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. And then again in verse 26, peace be with you. Why does John repeat this greeting? Well, because it's, it's significant. This peace is more than just a greeting. It's, it's a declaration. It's again a declaration that the rescue has been accomplished. These disciples, they now have peace with God through Jesus and only through Jesus, people can have peace with God. And look at the disciples in verse 20, their fear evaporates now. Now even in a world that is hostile to them, they are are overjoyed. Why? Because they've seen Jesus and they, they have peace with God. And the reason they can have peace with God uh, we see it is because sin is forgiven. Verses 21 to 23. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. With that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Again, there's a lot in these verses and we're just going to use broad brushstrokes. But what we can see from those verses is that central to Jesus' rescue is the forgiveness of sins. Right back in chapter one again of this gospel, Jesus has been introduced by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' death just three days earlier from these events was a sacrifice for sin. Last week we looked at Lazarus didn't we and we saw remarkably Jesus bringing Lazarus out of the tomb. We didn't read the whole of the chapter last week but after Lazarus is raised there's different responses as it always seems to be to Jesus. There were many who believed when they saw Lazarus raised, but some of them went to the, the Jewish authorities and the Jewish authorities are uh, anxious. They're fearful. Listen to what they say, said in uh, John chapter 11. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He said this. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation but also for all the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Jesus' death is a sacrifice for sin. Jesus' death brings forgiveness of sins and it's because of that forgiveness of sins that we can have peace with God and be welcomed into his family. Paul later writes in Colossians that through Jesus, God has reconciled all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus' rescue means peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. What a a rescue that is, isn't it? What a deep joy it brings to know that all of your sins are forgiven. The hymn writer says it well, doesn't he? My sin, O the bliss, of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. O my soul. And Jesus, as he appears uh, to his disciples here on the day that he was raised, he now sends them out to declare that this rescue this glorious rescue has been accomplished. He's breathing on them there in verse 22 and 23. It's like an acted out parable of what would take place at Pentecost. And as they go out bearing witness to Jesus, the Holy Spirit will be doing through them the same two edged work that characterized Jesus' ministry. The same two edged work that's described there in those verses. If you forgive anyone's sin, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. We saw that two-edged work, didn't we, as we looked at Jesus healing the blind man in John chapter 9. In that chapter, there's a blind man who has this growing spiritual sight, and he comes to worship Jesus, and at the end, he's, he's pronounced not guilty but in sharp contrast to the blind man it is, is the religious leaders. As they look at Jesus, their spiritual blindness deepens and Jesus' judgment upon them is that their guilt remains. And that same division is gonna become clear as the apostles go out into the world uh, and minister the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. And John, John, our writer of this gospel, is one of those apostles. Remember, he's writing so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And as we think about this morning, this rescue accomplished, that helps us understand what John means by life. John means by life a life that is greater than death. This life includes physical resurrection. This life is about forgiveness of sins. This life is about peace with God, the one who made us. This life is about being part of the eternal family of God, becoming one of his children and living in relationship with God as our father through the son, Jesus Christ. And we all need this life, don't we? I need this life. You need this life. We're all dying. We don't like to think about it, but we are all dying. And we will all face God as judge. And Jesus brings life, forgiveness, peace with God, a resurrection. That brings us uh, to our final verses, verses 24 to 31. Verses 24 to 31 are all about not seeing, but believing. Not seeing, but believing. When Jesus appeared to his disciples that first time, there was one disciple who wasn't there. That was Thomas. The other disciples had had told Thomas that Jesus was alive, but Thomas was having none of it. He's skeptical. I don't know what he thought was going on. This isn't really the kind of thing you, you joke about. Maybe, maybe he thought it was some kind of odd, unusual grief reaction that all his friends were having. But Thomas is a, is a realist. We saw that in, in chapter 11. He was definitely not an optimist. And listen, listen to what he says. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He's a skeptic, Thomas wants evidence. He wants to see and and to feel before he will believe. And then a, a whole week passes, a whole week passes. Imagine the conversations that there would have been between Thomas and the other disciples. Yes, Thomas, we've, we've seen him, we have, he's alive. No, I, no, I don't believe you. Over and over again, this would have gone on. And then uh, a week later, Jesus appears to his disciples again. It's almost an exact replay of the the week before, except this time Thomas is here. And Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. How does the rational, sceptical, evidence-demanding Thomas respond to Jesus? Verse 28, my Lord and my God. He believes. This Jewish man, Thomas, worships another Jewish man, Jesus, and calls him God. Why? because in the light of the tangible evidence that he can now see and touch, it's the only reasonable thing to do. So he turns from doubt and he believes in Jesus. Jesus' words in verse 29 to Thomas, I think are a, a gentle rebuke. See what you think. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus seems to rebuke Thomas for his slowness to believe. Suggests that Thomas already had ample evidence even before he was able to see and to touch. He too, like the other disciples, had the scriptures that testified to Jesus' resurrection. He'd already seen Jesus do many remarkable things, not least bringing Lazarus out the tomb with three words, Lazarus, come out. He also had the testimony of the other disciples, his friends, people he'd spent the last three years with, who who he knew well. He had their testimony that Jesus was alive. His problem was not that evidence was lacking. Thomas didn't need to see in order to believe, and neither do you or I. Listen to Jesus' words, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Believing in Jesus isn't a matter of a leap in the dark. It's not about ignoring reality or wishful thinking. It's a confidence that comes through listening to the eyewitness evidence about Jesus. The death and resurrection is is the turning point in history. It's not something that we should expect or demand to be reproduced in every decade, in every city of every country, so that we can all see and and touch. But Jesus here is, is, is showing us that he has not left us without ample reason to believe. The Gospel of John, in fact, is given It's part of the evidence so that we may Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. The resurrection, we've seen this morning, it happened. The rescue, it's, it's accomplished. Forgiveness of sin, peace with God, the hope of resurrection, a place in God's eternal family. I want to encourage you again this morning. Follow the signs see Jesus' glory, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have eternal life. Maybe you've been listening to this series over the last few weeks and this is all new to you. I, I, we would love to hear more from you at, at Cape and Ray Church. We'd love to connect with you. If that's you, please get in touch via the email that's on the website. But for all of us listening this morning, this series is here to strengthen our faith, to help us live well looking to Jesus. We're gonna sing about looking to Jesus in our final song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Let's enjoy the truth that's contained in this song.